Uh, today's scripture reading is from the book of 2 Corinthians, chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For this is the tent we, for in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. If indeed by putting it on, we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would further, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. For we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For for we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. For we know all appear before the judgment seat, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Therefore, Knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others, but, we, but what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. This is the reading of God's word. Good afternoon, everybody. Is this, uh, is this okay? All right. Uh, you know, before I start, uh, I don't know if I'm recognizable to any of you, but I was actually on sabbatical for like six months uh, last year, and this is the... Uh, the service that my family and I attended when we were in the area. And uh, at the start of my sabbatical, I was telling Pastor Francis, I was like, yeah, we're going to make this like our home base while I'm on sabbatical. And then he said, uh, you want to preach here? And I said, no. <laughs> I was like, I'm on sabbatical. I need a break. Uh, so I felt a little bit bad about that, but I have an opportunity, I, I guess, to, uh, um, to alleviate my guilt. But it's, it's always a privilege to, uh, to be here. Uh, just to worship with you all. Uh, this is a church that I love, and if I, if I uh, were not a pastor of my, I love my church too, so don't get me wrong, but uh, if I were a, uh, not a pastor, and if I was looking for a church, this is, a, I think, the church that my family and I uh, would want to be a part of. So uh, thank you for being uh, gracious to, uh, to me and my family, and let me pray, and we'll, we'll begin hearing from God's word. God, we thank you just for this time, and we, we pray that you, you would speak to us, and you know, um, by way of your word and your spirit, uh, we do need to hear from you. Uh, everybody here, whether we're a believer or not, I think the one thing that's clear is we need to hear from you. We need to hear from your word. So we pray that you would speak to us uh, in powerful ways, uh, speak through this text, speak through the Apostle Paul, speak through this, uh, this sermon, and help us to uh, not only discern um, what's true and what's false, but help us to also, through your word, uh, ex experience renewal through the power of your gospel and get a sense of your glory and your beauty. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Uh, I have been in the book of 2 Corinthians for the last couple of months, and this is a book that, this is a letter that I've really come to love because one of the major themes of this letter is on weakness. And I don't know about you, but after like 2020 and everything that we've been through, uh, I felt pretty weak. And uh, this letter was a great encouragement because one of the themes is it's saying that Weakness is actually the means to which we experience true power, which is God's power. And in this letter, one of the things that Paul is doing is 
he's defending his apostolic ministry because there are these like people that he sarcastically calls super apostles and they're challenging Paul's authority as an apostle. And the reason they're challenging his authority is because he lacks certain credentials. Uh, the Corinthian society, you can think of them as like similar to like New York culture where, you know, credentials and giftings and all those kinds of things are very important. And so what they're looking for in a spiritual leader, they're saying Paul doesn't seem to have. They want a great rhetorical speaker. Paul wasn't a great speaker. Uh, Paul was actually very poor, too. He, uh, he worked uh, labor with his hands. He was a tent maker. Uh, people thought that Paul was weak. I don't know if he looked physically weak, but they just thought he was like a weak man. And so Paul, he defends his ministry, and uh, he does so in a way not just to, he's not trying to defend himself, but he's defending himself because he's trying to show them this is part of the paradox of the gospel. The gospel is not about your gifts or your wealth or your achievements uh, those are not the ways that you exhibit true power, but the gospel comes to us by way of weakness. And so even though the immediate context of this section of 2 Corinthians, uh, this is actually Paul, he's defending his apostolic ministry, it's also a very pastoral letter about what Paul says about weakness and affliction and suffering and even death. And I suspect that uh, that's why these passages have been so meaningful to so many people throughout all of history because everybody experiences suffering and hardship and weakness and death in life. And while the experiences of life is, you know, it's, it's kind of like a magnet that pulls us towards despair and discouragement and fear, uh, what the theology of Paul lays out in this section, it reverses the polarity of that magnet so that our weakness and suffering doesn't have to pull us to these things, but it reorients us around hope and courage. Uh, right from the start of the passage, Paul, he gives a picture of what life is like on earth in our earthly bodies, and he uses the image of a tent, which again is very appropriate because he was a tent maker, so I imagine, I don't know, maybe he's thinking about what he's going to say to the Corinthians as he's making a tent, and he's like, oh, you know, this tent is a great illustration. But right in verse 1, he says, for we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God. And I imagine Paul making a tent and seeing this tent and saying, this is a good picture to describe the fragility of life in the body. When I was in college, uh, a couple um, friends and I, we, we drove to like this, uh, it was like this Christian Woodstocky kind of conference that took place in this huge field in Texas. So we drove from New Jersey all the way to Texas. And I think the, the idea behind it was to gather all the college students from all over the country for one day of worship and prayer. And since it was like all college students with very little money, you know, the way to make it affordable is not have hotels like you're going to stay at this retreat, but have, have college students bring tents and in this big open field, you know, kind of like pitch a tent and you sleep in the tent in this big open field. And, you know, it sounds like good in theory, but the first night we set up the tents, we're just hanging out until it got dark and it was time to sleep. And that night, Huge violent storm came, right? Uh, high winds, torrential rain came through. And <clears throat> the tent, we're like sleeping. All of a sudden, like, we, we see water starting to leak through the tent. And the, the winds were like lifting the pegs out of the tent. And so we're, we're in this tent and we're trying to like kind of keep it on the ground and keep its structure so that it wouldn't collapse. The winds are like blowing and the rains are coming down. And we're like holding on to it like, oh, what do we do? What do we do? And uh, I, I have this distinct memory of one of my friends 
you know, when you have icebreakers, it's like, what, you get to know people, it's like, what is your biggest fear? His answer would always be like, uh, wind gust, and everybody would laugh, right? And we're like, oh, he's just trying to be funny. But in that moment, I look at his face, and he's like the look of terror, and I was like, oh, he wasn't joking. He truly is afraid of wind gust. And like, it was like this violent storm, and everybody's starting to get soaked, all of our stuff is getting soaked, and we ended up just going to the car and sleeping in the car at night because of the weather. And so uh, that's what life in a tent could be like, right? It's a, it's a very, uh, it's not like a house, it's not like a building, but a tent is very weak. And so when Paul, he talks about a tent, it's a similar reference to, uh, I guess, the passage before, if you're familiar with the passage that talks about jars of clay and talks about our outer self. The tent is our earthly body, which is weak, which is perishable, which is impacted by the violent storms in life. Our skin breaks, our bone breaks, we get cuts, bruises, and burns. And internally, uh, as we all know now, we're susceptible to viruses, disease, all kinds of bad things. And even if we are fortunate enough not to be affected by any of those things, uh, we're all going to be affected by age. And our bodies get old, our bodies start to hurt. I'm a relatively young man, I think. I just turned 40. I think that's pretty young still. Uh, but my body hurts all the time. I've had like chronic pain in my neck and my shoulder for more than 10 years now. I don't know if any of you remember like Steve Kwok who used to come to his church. He was like a, a orthopedic surgeon. I went to him like to like look at my shoulder and things like that. Every time I see him, he would like give me an examination. He would put, put your hand, arm up. He's like, come on, let me cut you open. You need surgery, right? Like, no, 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 I'm good, I'm good. Uh, that, you know, that's what happens to our bodies. And <clears throat> some of you who are, you know, getting older, you experience that. When you uh, get up from your couch now, uh, you don't just get up. You're like, ugh, right? You get up or you pick up a, a young child. It's like, ugh. Right? That's what happens when we get older. That groan is a sound of uh, our bodies, our tents, right? the weakness. Paul also talks about groaning, though, in verses 2 and 4. And he says, what we do in this tent is we groan. And he's not talking about groaning in the literal sense that I just talked about. But there is actually a deeper kind of groan that he's talking about. And I think to get a better picture of what kind of groaning he's talking about, you can actually look at Romans 8. Romans 8 is a very uh, popular chapter um, amongst believers in the Bible. And I think, if you've ever read Romans 8, I think there's a lot of parallels between what he says in Romans 8 and what he says in this section in 2 Corinthians. In Romans 8, Paul talks about suffering of the present time, and he says they are not worth comparing with the glory that is revealed to us. And that's similar to what Paul has said about his affliction and the glory of the new covenant that is unveiled. Romans 8, Paul also talks about our weakness, and he says the Spirit helps us in our weakness. And that should sound familiar, too, in this letter. But with respect to groaning, here's what Paul says in Romans 8. He says this, For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. When he talks about groaning, one of the things he connects it to is childbirth. Uh, I don't know how many mothers here uh, gave birth without any kind of pain intervention, like an epidural. Uh, you may have either chosen not to have an epidural, or maybe like, it was too late and the baby was coming and you didn't have time to get an epidural. Uh, my wife, in both uh, childbirths, had an epidural. Uh, and, you know, it, it's good for the pain. But I did have a friend whose wife decided not to get, voluntarily decided, did not want to get an epidural and uh, birthed their first child I guess like through a midwife, not in a hospital, uh, like one of those, I don't actually know the details, but anyway, 
he was telling me <laughs> the experience of his wife giving birth like that, and he said it was the most traumatic experience of my, he didn't say my wife's life, he said it was the most traumatic experience of my life. And he's like, my wife was going, and going through so much pain that I actually started like shedding tears because of like the amount of pain that she was in. And what he said is like, she was like pushing so hard and she was like sweating that the, the blood vessels in her eyes popped, right? And so uh, after the baby uh, was birthed, her eyes were like, like extremely red and bloodshot and she had looked like that she, she had been through a war. And I was thinking about that story and I was like, man, you know, thank God for uh, modern medical technology. But you know, in Paul's day, that was probably the norm of giving birth to a child, closer to my friend's experience than uh, maybe many, uh, many, not of us, many women, because, you know, I don't go through that, but uh, many women will experience today. And I, I imagine maybe Paul has, had seen, like, a lot of uh, women giving birth and, like, the kind of pain that they go through, and they're screaming and they're crying out. They're saying, like, you know, I can't do this. This is, like, this is too painful. Uh, but then you hear the cry of the baby, and, like, there's a strange transition that happens from, like, extreme pain now to, like, the joy of meeting, like, new little person, right? And uh, that period of going through childbirth while also anticipating meeting your child is a strange moment that, like, you, you go through. And that's how Paul, I think he's thinking about this life and the life that is to come. All of creation groans in, uh, in this tent. We groan because this life is full of hardship and affliction and suffering and pain. But there's also the sense of anticipation for this new life that is to come. And, and we live kind of like in that in-between tension where we see and, and feel the experience of pain, but we're also anticipating the arrival of something good and something glorious. And so the pain and discouragement does not last forever because there is light at the end of the tunnel, and namely, the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. And when Jesus was crucified and then raised three days later, it wasn't just kind of like some important historical event. It was an important cosmic event. It changed everything. When I say cosmic event, I mean the death and resurrection of Jesus. It created a good, the best kind of disruption, not just in this world, but also in the spiritual realms of the heavenly places. This disruption interrupted the progression of sin and evil and death and decay, and it introduced light into darkness. And while new creation is not fully there yet, the power of the resurrection has broken into this creation so that now we can live according to the promises of God, which are guaranteed by the giving of the Holy Spirit. Theologians have called this two-age theology because you know, we live in two ages, the old age and the age that is to come. We are in this old creation full of death, sin, and decay, but we also have access to the power of the new age, which renews us day by day. And that's the tension we live in. But let me also point out something and clarify something. While it is true that we groan because of the fragility of life and the sufferings of the present age, according to Paul, that's actually not the main reason why we groan. Uh, again, if you look at Romans 8 and our passage, our groaning is actually rooted in our longing. Romans 8, Paul says, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. In this passage, Paul says, in this tent, we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. Our groaning is rooted in this deep longing to see that what God has promised through his resurrection 
We want to see that come to fruition. We long for that. And that's where our groaning comes from. Uh, I don't know if this is a pre-pandemic experience anymore. I think maybe now it's a now experience, but have you ever had to wait uh, to eat at a restaurant known to have like amazing food? Uh, you know, maybe you go into like the city in, in New York and like restaurants there are smaller and you tend to have to like wait longer to, to eat a meal there. And so, <clears throat> you know, it's, uh, it, it's like amazing food. It's so good that uh, there's like a, a one or two hour wait. So you go there, you put your name in, and then you start waiting. And then your stomach starts to make all this noise because you're so hungry. And you look, you look in the window, you see the food, and you can start to smell the food, and it stirs up this longing. And uh, you can't wait for this, this food. And as you wait for those two hours, you know, wafting the sweet smells of that food, you, you start to groan because you want to sit down and you want to get a taste of that food. And we may not realize it, but in this body and in this age, all of our groaning is rooted in a deep longing for the glory that is to come in this new creation that Paul is talking about. Whereas Paul would say in verse 2, we groan longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. Dwelling. Uh, I want to spend a moment and just reflect on just that one word, dwelling. Uh, we all long for home, wherever home is. Uh, home isn't necessarily found in an apartment. Home isn't necessarily found in a house. But home basically represents a sense of belonging and security. And therefore, while a lot of people have a place to live, not everyone necessarily has a home. And sometimes home is not where we dwell, which is actually the point that uh, we're going to see Paul make later on in this passage. Uh, I, I, uh, while I was on sabbatical, I took a history class at Rutgers just for fun. And uh, we, well, you're thinking, why? Well, it was fun for me. So we read this book. It's a great book called Lose Your Mother uh, by this author named Sadia Hartman. And Sadia Hartman is an English professor at Columbia. And uh, she wrote a book about her journey to Africa, specifically as an African-American woman. And her story is very much the story of a of longing for home. And it was a very illuminating book because she touches on something about the impact that the African slave trade had that does not really get, I think, a lot of attention. Uh, you see, within the African-American community, there's this like, idealized vision of Africa where they imagined it's going to be the place where I finally feel like I belong. And so what she does is she goes to Ghana expecting when, once I get to Ghana, it's not going to feel like America, but now it's going to feel like home. I'm finally going to find a place where I belong. And she gets there only to discover she doesn't belong there either. What she discovered is that the people of Ghana actually see African Americans not as Africans, but as Americans. The slave trade for them is not a story of victimization. The slave trade for them is a story of survival. Uh, and the ones that remain in Ghana, they were the triumphant warriors who survived being taken by these slave traders. Not only that, but the people of Ghana viewed African Americans as, because they viewed them as Americans, as very fortunate because they lived in a much wealthier land with far more opportunities. After all, who but an American can afford a plane ticket that brought them to Ghana in the first place? And so she comes with this very idealistic vision of, you know, I'm going to find home. I'm going to be home with my people only to discover home is not Ghana either. And while she tries to end on a note of hope, there is actually a, a, it ends on a note of sadness. There's a sense of being a person without a home. And she doesn't feel like America's her home. She doesn't feel like uh, Ghana is her home. And she feels like a person without a home. 
There's a lot of great passages in the book. She's an English professor, so she's good with like writing and language. But let me read one where she reflects on what home means to a slave, and this is what she says. The transience of a slave's existence still leaves its traces in how black people imagine home as well as how we speak of it. We may have forgotten our country, but we haven't forgotten our dispossession. It's why we never tire of dreaming of a place that we can call home, a place better than here, wherever here might be. It's why 100 square blocks of Los Angeles can be destroyed in an evening. We stay there, but we don't live here. Uh, I know we live in a culture where words like sin are not uh, immediately recognizable. If you say sin to somebody who doesn't come from a Christian background, didn't grow up in church, they don't know what you're talking about. Like, what, do you, what do you mean by sin? Uh, but if I were to try to convey the impact of sin to someone in our culture, I would say um, it's the heartbreak and sadness of what Sadia Hartman feels when she comes to the realization that she has no home. Conversely, if I were going to try to convey the power of the gospel and why it's such good news to people, I would say this is why the gospel is good news. God brings us home in the person and in the work of Jesus Christ. We are no longer homeless. We are no longer exiles to God. We're exiles in this world, right? Sojourner. We're <laughs> sojourners in this world. But we're no longer exiled to God, and therefore we are no longer orphans. But what Paul says, we are now adopted as sons right, from Romans 8. We are redeemed children who God has made to belong to his household. As Paul says in this passage, we are no longer found naked, but we are clothed by our heavenly dwelling. Because of Jesus' death and resurrection, we now ultimately have a home. And while we do not yet dwell in that home because we live in this earthly tent, we long for it, do we not? And the difference between Hartman's experience and that of the believer is that we ultimately won't be disappointed um, because God's promise for us is to provide us a home. And he gives us the Holy Spirit by way of a down payment, right? And by the way, the Greek word for guarantee is actually the word for down payment. All right, if this is all true, what does that mean then, right? What are the implications? Uh, I have an eight-year-old and a five-year-old, and my five-year-old, he wants to know implications all the time because implications are a way, like, you kind of create meaning out of something. So like, a couple weeks ago, I was driving in the car, and she was in the back seat, and she asked me, Daddy, do you like green? And I said, yeah, green's my favorite color. I love green. And then she said, my, my oldest daughter, her name is Abby, she's like, well, what if Abby's name was green? I'm like, what? Right, what are you talking about? She's like, if Abby's name was green, then would that mean you would like Abby more? And I was like, no, <laughs> right? Uh, I would like her the same. Uh, just because I like green doesn't mean I like people who are named green more. And you know, in that conversation, she's like wrestling and struggling to draw the right implications, and she's looking for the right implications to make so that she makes meaning in the world. And I think even for us, it's very important that we, we struggle, wrestle, and try to come with the right implications of what Paul is saying here. Why is it so important so that we can kind of create meaning for ourselves as well? What are the implications of what Paul is saying here? There's a couple that he, he says here, um, and we'll actually see they come from the same source or same root. The first thing Paul says is, we are always of good courage, and he actually says that twice. And so one of the implications of this is that Paul's no longer driven by fear. Fear tells us a lot about our faith. And one of my old counseling professors who, who actually passed away, uh, I quote him all the time. And he would say about fear, he's like, there's a lot of good reasons to be afraid. 
you and I, we can think of millions of reasons to be afraid. Uh, viruses are in the world. That's a good reason to be afraid. Uh, disease and sickness are in the world. That's a good reason to be afraid. Inflation is crazy, right? That's a good reason to be afraid. Fear is understandable. At the same time, I think what the Bible would say is not that there's no good reason to be afraid. There's a better reason to not be afraid. And that better reason is the promises of God. If we are a people driven by fear, it means we don't fully trust in God's promises. We don't find our security in God's promises, which is why fear is not primarily an issue of circumstance, but fear is actually primarily an issue of faith for us. As Paul says, we walk by faith, not by sight. God has promised us a heavenly home with him so that even as our heavenly home is destroyed, even as the wind blows it, even as the water seeps in, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands. That's something that we all draw security from. Uh, Second thing Paul says, whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him, to please God. There's a difference between trying to avoid what is wrong and trying to please someone, right? Uh, I don't do this much anymore, but I guess when I was younger, sometimes I get invited to, to speak at these youth retreats or at these youth conferences, and a lot of times... I don't know if this is the same for like young people today, but back then, uh, you know, topics like dating and sex were like, you know, I guess popular, or it was like popular to ask the speaker to like do a seminar about it and to teach about it. And these teenagers, they would always have questions about those kind of things. And one of the questions that they would always ask is like, hey, you know, what are the boundaries for physical intimacy in a dating relationship? And what, what activities are considered sin? And again, I don't know if teenagers are asking those kind of questions anymore, but back then they did, and it's something that they were curious about. And if they were looking for a list of like do's and don'ts, or like rights and wrongs, then they were probably very disappointed in my answer because I didn't provide that. But what I would basically say is this, excuse me, I would say, if your approach to God and living uh, for God is how far can I go without something being wrong, then you have a very distorted view in terms of how you should relate to God. Your approach to a life with God should not be, what can I get away with? Your approach to God should be a life of, how can I please him in what I do? And that that yields very different results. That is what should be your moral compass, so to speak. In human relationships, of course, there are people that we relate to in such a way. Uh, For example, when I look at a, a, a meter maid giving like a, like parking tickets in New York, I just want to avoid doing what's wrong. So I don't want to park illegally, so I don't get a ticket. I don't think, uh, you know, what can I do to please this person? Because that's not the nature of my relationship with that person. But you know, with my wife and my kids, where the relationship is much more personal, I do have thoughts of what can I do to please them and to make them happy. I, I don't just think, oh, what can I do to not make them mad? Because then I would not do a whole bunch of things. I would not uh, clean the toilet, right? <laughs> Which my wife gets very angry at. Uh, but if I'm thinking, what can I do to please them? Uh, then I'll say, hey, I don't have to clean the toilet like every other day, but I want to make my wife happy, so let me do it every other day. Uh, I could say, you know, I don't have to pack like a little like treat for my kids when I pack their lunch, like a little candy or chocolate. But I want to make them happy, so I'll do it. Right? It's a very different way of how you approach relationships. And similar to that, 
think that's how we ought to approach our relationship with God. We ought to seek to please him. Given what God has given to us and promised to us, the implication is not just to live a life to not make him upset. The implication is to live a life of gratitude and aim to please him in all that we do. You see, Paul, he brings these two implications together in the final verse, or in verse 10, where he says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. And you kind of, like, if you're reading, like, the passage, and you get to that verse, you might wonder, like, why is Paul bringing up the final judgment here? But it actually is related to the fear of the Lord. You know, uh, in verse 11, that's what Paul says, knowing the fear of the Lord, right? Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. The fear of the Lord is a phrase that is used all over the Bible, and, you know, it's usually not about being scared of God, but it's about having a certain kind of disposition or attitude in life that has a proper reverence for God. Uh, I just heard, um, you know, the Warriors won the NBA championship, and I was, uh, I go down, like, this YouTube rabbit hole of, like, Steve Kerr videos, and he was, like, speaking at some, I guess, leadership conference, and he was talking about being a good leader. And, you know, uh, Steve Kerr, if you're not familiar with sports, he was coached by, like, really legendary coaches, and he won a lot of NBA championships as a player and now as a coach, and uh, they were kind of, you know, asking him, like, what did you learn from, like, your experiences of being, like, a championship that many times and from all these legendary people that uh, you were mentored by? And he said this, you know, even though their personalities were so different, they did share a common trait. And this common trait was this. He said, you were always a little bit afraid of them. And, and then he realized that's not exactly what he's trying to say. So he tried to nuance it. He's like, I, I don't mean by that like you were afraid they were going to hurt you, but because you, you knew they cared about you. You knew that they loved you, but they were such like towering figures that you just didn't want to disappoint them. And I think that's a, a pretty good way of actually trying to understand what the Bible says when it talks about the fear of God. As a result of the fear of God, everything in your life is now reordered around pleasing him because you revere him so much. And when you're driven by other fears, like the fear of man, you know, what you end up doing, you reorder everything around pleasing that person or those people. But in order to understand how the dynamics of the fear of the Lord can work, we can look at what it means to live in the fear of man. The fear of man doesn't necessarily mean you're afraid of people, but you're driven by their thoughts of you, their opinions of you, their judgments of you. There's something within your heart that says their judgment is much more important than God's judgment, and I want to make sure that they render a positive judgment upon me. Social media is all about the fear of man. Uh, there are different phrases that describe this dynamic, whether you call it peer pressure or people-pleasing, but it's basically giving other people the power to drive your thoughts, your actions, your decisions. And oftentimes, those desires lead to sin, big and small. You might never tell someone the truth about something because you're afraid about how, might they react, how they might react to you. You might overcommit yourself to someone because you're afraid of saying no to them. You might go with the flow of maybe like an unhealthy culture or a corrupt system at work because you don't want people to think of you as like, oh, he's the, the whistleblower or she's the whistleblower. You see, the dynamic of fear of men is everywhere and in all of us, and it's a powerful force that's really dangerous for healthy relationships. But conversely, the fear of the Lord means you're driven by the thoughts and the opinions and the judgments of God, and your aim is to please him. And we need the fear of the Lord to drive us toward a life of obedience and integrity and 
frankly, I don't know how a believer lives with integrity without the fear of the Lord. We all need a sense that one day we're coming before God, before the judgment seat of God. And what Paul says in verse 10, right? We're going to be judged for our actions in the body. And without it, we end up becoming untethered to whatever we do. And we just kind of go with the flow of things, right? Whatever is acceptable and whatever is okay in a particular moment or cultural time. But here's the good news. The good news is that when we come before God's judgment seat for the believer, it's more about receiving than about being turned away. We know we won't be turned away because of Christ. We know that we will be invited into our heavenly home, into this new creation, that we will be given these new resurrected bodies because of Christ. And we know that we can be confident in those promises because God says, Jesus sent the Holy Spirit, gave the Holy Spirit to us as a down payment for the home that we will inherit later on when Jesus Christ returns. And until then, we're in this like weird in-between state, right? Anticipating this new birth, this new creation. But until then, we make it our aim to please God with faith longing for our heavenly home. Let's pray. Uh, God, we, you know, we lack faith and we lack belief and maybe imagination even in understanding how glorious our heavenly dwelling is going to be. And maybe because of that, we don't really have a sense of um, how great your gospel is, how great the promises of this good news is, how incredible the, the work of Christ on the cross is. But God, if, if you're gracious and merciful to us and if you allow us to get a glimpse of the glory of the new creation, a glimpse, a taste of the power of the resurrection, I know, God, that it will change us. That you will give us eyes to see, eyes of faith, to walk by faith, not by sight. That you will give us eyes to see with faith that indeed this message that you entrust to us, that you entrust to your church to proclaim, a message that is wrapped not in achievement and strength and gifts and worldly power, but a message that is wrapped in a fragile jar of clay and weakness broken people, we would have a sense of how worthy you are, not only of our worship, but of our entire lives, and that we would want to please you in all that we do. I pray, God, you would give us a taste of this glory, a taste of this new creation. And when we're discouraged, and even when we feel like we're doing well, that we might long for the beauty of our heavenly home. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.